0: And welcome to Radio Contra, the podcast of AmericanPartisan.org. I, of course, am your host the commandante of the Mossy Oak Militia. And tonight I have a honored guest. We're going to be doing a sit down. We've emailed back and forth several times. And, um, you know, I, I am constantly blown away by the caliber and talent individuals who want to come on the show, and this interview is absolutely going to be no different. I am joined by author Mark J. O'Connor, and he is an expert on fourth-generation warfare, a topic that I know many of you have read a lot about, something that is a world of study unto its own. And something that I have found over the years as being a frequently discussed and often misrepresented and misunderstood topic. So, without further ado, throw O'Connor, It's great to have you here.
1: Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's great to be on this show. I like it quite a bit. I've listened to it quite a bit, and I'm I am honored equally to uh, contribute to, to its
0: uh, to its content. Absolutely. Absolutely. So. Right off the bat, for the, the listeners out there, what is fourth generation warfare? Run us down real quick, uh, uh, just a, a, a definition, terms, you know, kind of how it differs from other eras of low intensity conflict and, and just what the, the broader picture of the, the whole thing.
1: So here's Mark's uh, take on that. And um, uh, so I look at Lynn's uh, expression of fourth generation worker, which he characterizes as a crisis of legitimacy with the state. And um, he was him and his colleagues uh, were, I think, somewhat prescient in the late 90s or no late 80s when they when they established that idea. But I don't think. I think it was really kind of like Serbia, um, the, the, this, the end of the Soviet Union, where we began to see that unfold in uh, physical uh, space. So follow me uh, on this. Um, uh, in the United States, nobody is satisfied with the elections. So each side says, you know, when the Republicans have office, the left says this. And when the left has office, the right says that. So nobody is satisfied with that condition and both look at the incumbent government as being illegitimate. Like, you know, whatever whatever political platforms or, or yeah, political platforms or concepts or ideas either side has, um, they, they can't get purchased because the other group is there. So they tend to look at it, tend to look at it uh, illegitimately. And this delegitimization is more extreme as you go to the extreme left and right. For instance, the far right and the far left view the government in any incarnation, whoever is is, uh, elected to that office as being illegitimate. And as you go towards the center, there's like increasing perceptions of legitimacy. So fundamentally, what we have is a condition where no matter who is in office, the other side isn't happy with that. And um, so Primarily, like in the mean to like, you know, the, the, the average to like about halfway out. Uh, so you have that condition. And that was like not, not a real big deal because previously uh, there was not widespread access to media. So in like during the 1980s where I grew up and I'm a Gen Xer, uh, if, you, you know, Carter or Reagan, if you were an extreme radical or whatever on the right or left, the press would just like not look at you. And if they looked at you, they would tell the audience what you were about. So it was about shutter control and narrative control. And so really the idea of fourth generation warfare didn't really find, uh, much purchase in, 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 a physical space in meat space, uh, just because, uh, there, there wasn't the media there, but however, in the mid nineties with the creation of the internet, uh, everybody now could characterize themselves as they wanted to be seen. And with technology making media devices smaller, now everybody can capture their own optics, how they wanna be seen. And they didn't have to rely on the press to, uh, to to do that for them. So with the press, there was a lot of like stove piping of perceptions and uh, perceptions are what drive legitimacy. So like prior to the internet, the big media companies like the you know Washington Post or 60 minutes or CNN they controlled that they controlled the shutter and they controlled the narrative but with the internet that was no longer the case and you know the one of the you know great examples of, of that uh, was like in like uh, you know Serbia so the press still controlled that um that narrative but now you could also see like how groups were going to fracture uh and like so like the mid-90s was a big laboratory uh so with fourth generation warfare just like lynn said there's a crisis of legitimacy with the state nobody is uh, satisfied with the incumbent government well i should say uh one one large group is not satisfied with the incumbent government and that changes in america every four to eight years and um so they're not satisfied with that, but they're not just not satisfied with it. They want to implement political end states, especially the left. And uh, they're going to do uh, like basically insurgency to to accomplish that because they really do view the government as being illegitimate. And there's no way to make that true to them because or legitimate because it's so far removed from literal ideas of things. So when I say fourth generation warfare, I mean just that and because Of this crisis of legitimacy and it just in the increasing polarization in the state you can see in the united states where there's like balkanization and fracturing across like political polarities like right versus left extreme right versus extreme left um you know the these special interest groups who have these sort of like leftist uh talking points versus these groups who have sort of rightist talking points there's just a lot of polarization in the United States. And again, like uh, the former Republic of Yugoslavia provides an example of what happens when people can't agree on things and, um, and uh, you know how that fracturing and that balkanization takes place and where that's going to go. So that's what I mean by fourth generation warfare. I think I kind of get what Lynn says, but again, I'm not an expert and I don't pretend to you know, have, take you know, understand Lynn perfectly. But it is this crisis of legitimization and this crisis of legitimacy with the state is perceptual because that's what drives that. And those perceptions are controlled by media, which now is the Internet and some of the traditional medias. So does that help? Does that help You know, explain everything?
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think to your point, we're seeing this in multiple avenues of approach today. And I think one of the most pressing examples of that is the leaking of the early draft of the, the majority decision for Roe versus Wade for the, the challenge and the expected striking down of Roe versus Wade, um, which was we, we can confirm absolutely fact it was leaked out by a law clerk working in the supreme court now we can we can go a lot of directions with that um it's my belief that it is likely uh sotomayor or uh elena kagan one of the two of them one of their law clerks and, and i'm narrowing that them down very specifically um because they've been outspoken opponents of of they 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 are highly politicized and especially those two, especially those two, and so now we have an erasure of legitimacy of one of the the three highest offices in the United States. It, it, it's an erasure of legitimacy, and that's not my words, by the way. That, that's not my opinion on that. That is uh, the the view expressed by uh, Justice Clarence Thomas in an interview that he did. I believe it was uh, yesterday, either yesterday or, or uh, Thursday, that he did that. And those are remarks that he made. This is a perfect example of one avenue of approach of fourth generation warfare. When when people are led to believe that four GW, or fourth generation warfare is simply Warfare is simply, you know, the the image of a disheveled gorilla with a with a, a, a ragtag rifle and green fatigues. Right. That's that's not necessarily the case. And it's warfare at all levels. I think that you're absolutely spot on when you point out that the left is wholly committed. They have politicized everything. Everything that you see is politicized. And on the right really the the only thing that we can point to, of course, is a, is uh, the Fox News example. You know, well, we at least we have Fox News, which we know is uh, problematic at best. And we have uh, other avenues of conservative outlets which have been shut down. Um, you know, o a n was taken off of direct TV. Uh, Newsmax certainly is is not really a a competitor or a major player in conservative thought, um, and I, I mean even though they have a market share, they're not that big. Media is a critical component of fourth generation warfare, and to your to your point, I believe that um, their moves to shut down alternative media in totes, and, and they went after the big names first you know, they're going to start coming for everybody though. And, um, that, that is a part of it. Now with, with that said, that leads us of course, to neoliberalism and the role that neoliberalism plays in all of this. What role do you see, uh, neoliberal policies, corporate kleptocracy, the marriage of, uh, the marriage and influence of corporate money, in politics and how that is manifested into the current democratic party because there was a very strong case that can be made for that um in your opinion how do you break that down and, and what are you seeing uh
1: well so so politics is is conflict and, and politics is war and you need money to fight a war and uh, wherever you know you can get a plot of money is basically where you're going to go Corporations, especially like big tech, have two things. One, they have media, What they have access to uh, the electorate to influence them, and they have money. So it's not surprising that there would be a lot of leftist inroads in, in, into that. Um, the other like, you know, companies like whatever, uh, I think some uh, equity firms were maybe discussing the idea of you know, getting rid of Remington or arms or something like that out of a sense of social duty. Well, you know, I think that's just so much uh, grandstanding and sort of like uh, appeasement. Uh, they're not going to, no no equity firm is going to, or equity fund is going to get rid of something that's really valuable, uh, no matter how, you know, odious it is. Uh, so, uh, like the marriage of like politics and corporations is just, naturally where things are going to go uh, capitalism is about making money and uh politicians uh need votes uh, to get access to political infrastructure so i mean the two work together and that's just going to continue um, it's uh i think interesting to note that like today like we have these things called non-governmental organizations which are not-for-profits but it was really like in the Serbia or the, uh, the conflict in Serbia, the, the Balkans, where that sort of came to head because President Clinton could not uh, get the government resources he wanted to do what he wanted there. So he began looking out at these various uh, charities and saying, hey, these people actually produce a government like function, uh, but they're not the government. So they don't have the same restrictions on, on using them. Um, so. Uh, the idea of like non-governmental organizations really comes to that time. I was, you know, in that uh, period, in that epoch in America. And prior to that, really like a uh, a charity was just a charity. Right. And, and um, it wasn't a non-governmental organization, which kind of like put an official veneer on it. And uh, it became what they are today, which are integral parts of uh, the political infrastructure in America. They are. They, uh, they produce leadership, they produce influence, they produce revenue. Um, they, they're like little sort of like uh, reserve areas, like when a certain person maybe falls out of favor, they'll tuck them away and back burner them at some NGO for however long. Uh, you know, and when I say NGO, it's easy to look at like the ones that we, you know, as rightists, we might look at and say, oh, well, that's Human Resources Council. But it also includes the Brookings Institution and the Manhattan Institution. And the Atlanta Council and all like the sort of rightist uh, NGOs as well. Uh, so, and so those NGOs are you know centers of money and they're centers of influence. Uh, so that's like their importance in in the overall infrastructure in the fabric, the low intensity conflict fabric that's in the United States
0: presently. Those are certainly interesting points. I've seen evidence going back to uh, Clinton. And the use of NGOs, which was very well documented, very fascinating, and one that would be replicated under the Obama administration with the Arab Spring, the quote unquote Arab Spring, um, which were a, a series of color revolutions that benefited certain corporations that had financial interests in those targeted nations because the nations that were uh, targeted during the Arab Spring had all proposed a return to gold standard uh, for trading oil. And so that's that's quite fascinating. And and what you're bringing up about the NGOs and, and the uh, role that they play in politics in totes, whether that's domestic politics here in the United States, whether that is local level elections. Um, whether that is politics abroad, because they certainly have played a role in many elections that we've seen, uh, in France this is a particularly good example of, uh, the quote unquote victory of Emmanuel Macron. And the, there are several non-governmental organizations that played a substantial role posing as, uh, pollsters, as, um, uh, Uh, polling site overseers, and it's highly suspect, and there is a substantial amount of evidence to all this, is highly suspect regarding the role that they actually played there. Um, So what role do you think that they are playing here at home, considering the fact that they are unaccountable Uh, For the for the most part, they do not have the Freedom of Information Act requirements. There's a lot that you can get done with an NGO that you can't get done necessarily with governmental structure, as you pointed out. So what role do you see them playing here at home leading up into the midterms and then later the the uh, probably most importantly, the 2024 presidential election?
1: so i mean they are again this integral part of america's political infrastructure and fabric so they're they're there to influence the the population and to generate revenues and to support their operations but also so that they can support their various candidates for their political end states which are primary leftist end states and as such they are um so these are this is this is political warfare. You're attempting to influence the electorate or a group of or an audience to some to some perception that goes to your uh, political end states, and that is their purpose: influence, uh, money, and uh, you know providing uh, employment. <laughs> For uh, you know various uh, political operators, no matter you know whether that's like a big political operator or like a you know a, a smaller political operator, that's that's largely their purpose. And one of their like central central purposes is to influence the population as part of perception management. And so, perception management is an essential, an integral part of propaganda. It is in fact the purpose of propaganda to influence and manage the perceptions of, a, of an audience. Uh, So that they will, so that that audience will uh, actuate the political desires of that group. So they are information warfare, political warfare entities writ large and legally. And you're right. They don't have any government oversight. So they can basically do whatever they want within the law. They are not, um, since they're not part of the government, constitutional protections don't necessarily apply. So like the government can't agitate to or cannot uh, petition Twitter, say, to, Um, uh, censor certain people but this group over here certainly can and that's perfectly lawful and this is kind of like a funny little trap that republicans uh, find themselves in because uh, republicans tend to be big corporate um, uh, enthusiasts and uh, you know they'll tell you straight away that the constitution does not affect uh, corporations well here's like here's the unfortunate uh, side effect or other effect of of that is that now you have organizations that are more influential than the government and uh they're literally canceling uh conservative voices and the conservatives what what can they do what can the republicans do except you know put their hands in their pockets and look at their shoes and say well you know the constitution doesn't really apply to corporations. It it only applies to to the government. So they've kind of like painted themselves or cut themselves into this like unpleasant little corner where they can't act. And I think that's like a masterstroke there. Um,
0: well, you know. it is. And and they they the unfortunate conundrum that that mainstream Republicans find themselves in. And th- this is coming from knowing people in political science fields and. Uh, some of the campaign cowboys at, at you know, the, the state electoral level. And the problem that they have is that they all, to a man, they all believe that all these things are business as usual. That, well, you know, I mean, you, you have one bad electoral cycle and, and you know, well, we'll get past it. None of them are willing to accept the, the, the basic premise that you've already pointed it out that what's happening on the left, what we see coming from Democrat politicians, is this marriage of, of politics and warfare, a fourth generation war that they are fighting on the American people to bring about a communist revolution in America. And that if Republicans continue to fight or not fight, as they've done, uh, if if they're going to keep this same strategy of well it's it's just business as usual uh, behind the scenes they're going to find themselves without a country and in a hurry.
1: I'll have to I definitely agree with the find themselves without a country. Um, and another issue in there's no way to bring this up delicately. So the Republican uh, voter demographic is primarily white males, and uh, they just don't like. Do anything to like appease that demographic, whereas like the progressive uh, voter demographic is a little different, and they do want to appease them. So on one side, you can't say certain things, and on the other side, you can say basically whatever you want. You can even call for their murder or destruction or whatever you want, and uh, you're you're fine. That's considered leaning in and doing 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 right and speaking your truth. On the Republican side. You can't say anything like that because you'll get censored by uh, like people like Mitch uh, 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 Mitt Romney, who I despise, and you know, like Mitch McConnell and, and them. So uh, right. there's like this real like difficult there. The Republicans are fighting a battle involving a morality that is just unavailable. I mean, you know, if you if, if you. If like in World War One, if you if your cavalry troop storms a machine gun company and gets mowed down, you shouldn't do that again. Uh, You should change tactics, take a look at things, study it a little bit and change up rather than keep doing the same things like that, because the old America is unfortunately, I think, passing away in some cases. And when I old America, I mean, like post-war largesse America. I'm not talking about like the post-war America. That's. That's going on the wayside, and you can't continue to fight the contemporary battlefield uh, with sort of like that morality. The progressives have only like one morality, and that's to win, and they're doing very well that way.
0: Yeah, I would agree. And, and coming from a social science background uh, academically, they – it, it's very interesting it, and conservatives have a a fundamental misunderstanding of this principle. They come from the ideology and and the uh, the underpinning of their ideology with this thing called objective morality. And when you have objective morality, in in essence, it means the ends justify the means. If you win, it does not matter what. Uh, steps that you have to take it does not matter what measures uh, that other people would find just absolutely immoral it doesn't matter you won and and so there is no such thing that this this concept to the leftists this concept of honor is a a very abstract one that really has very little relevance Um, you know to conservatives we have this sense of honor we have a code of honor we don't lie to people we believe in honesty fairness and when and, and to us that that uh imbues a sense of when when you win you really win but the problem is that that we don't really win and we've only won for a few years at a time and the other issue that we have that that i'm i think is a good segue into is uh, revisiting your, your concept of the NGOs and the, uh, the policy of putting a lot of money and influence and power into politics. The left has been very adept at paying attention to local level politics and focusing on local level elections while allowing conservatives to have a certain number of victories at the national level. And so a lot of people that are living in suburbia and their comfortable lifestyle and they have their ETF and their IRA and everything, it looks really good on paper. Meanwhile, the leftist machine continues to build momentum. And that's why we see, and correct me if I'm wrong, that's why we're seeing such a a swift and severe reaction at the school board meetings at the local most level we're seeing that uh, in, in Loudon County, Virginia, Round Rock, Texas. Those are the ones that just continue to make the news, but this is happening in a lot of places across America. And this is why you have a, a, a known leftist mouthpiece like Merrick Garland, a pure ideologue as the attorney general declaring parents who, who dare to speak out as they, they are terrorists. And that we're going to go after them. We're going to geofence them. We're going to harvest their data. We're going to monitor their cell phones. We're going to deny them their freedoms of the Fourth Amendment because they exercise their rights under the first. What do you say to that?
1: Uh, I think that's a great strategy and it is uh, it exemplifies why the left keeps winning. The left is in it to win it. And there's literally no like really the only limits they have are they like don't get caught breaking the law and don't do any like big capital crimes. So that's that's it. I mean, the left continues to win as a as a professional military man. uh, I look at them and I say, that's probably a pretty squared away enemy. That's they're doing the right things right because they keep winning. And when we look at that, I ask, why doesn't the right, uh, do that? I don't know. It's, I, I don't know why the right doesn't do that. Um, like just keep, you know, with these ideas about like bringing the fight, uh, to the left, the political fight to the left, uh, the left or I'm sorry, the right just keeps doing like the same things that it's been doing. It doesn't innovate, um, uh, like on the far right of things, uh, we just don't, uh, Organize the way the left does. So the left is very great at organizing. Um, The left had influence like in the 60s and 70s from a lot of left-wing revolutionaries. They learned organizing because they were revolutionaries and, you know, a military type organizing. Um, Some were maybe formally trained by, you know, members of the former Soviet Union, but other ones, others read the right books um, about you know, leftist about political struggle and political struggle is, you know, it's not hard to understand political struggle. These are your end states. You have to organize the body, the corpus, the electorate, whatever you want to call it, the proletariat. uh, And to, to accomplish these end states, the left is very socially oriented. The right isn't so socially oriented, which is surprising. Now, the far right in some aspects in some places in the far right they are very socially or- oriented like some of the uh like for instance the over at countercurrents.com because they uh, subscribe to um the the rightism which was produced in 1970s france by chris so they understand that a little bit better that sort of gramscian struggle but like the middle right and you know the 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 right of center right uh just I, I don't know. It's just politics as usual. They they do like the, the spin up, the electoral spin up two years before the election. They have an election and then they go back home. The left is on target 24-7 prosecuting the target, prosecuting that political warfare objectives. They're on it all the time because they have the social infrastructure to do that with. They have the people to prosecute political targets constantly. And um, I think, you know, we can hate the left all we want, but they're organizing their communication And their propaganda is uh, exemplary. Uh, The right should really take a look at that and say, why are we losing and what can we do?
0: Yeah, you know, something that's very interesting in in that regard that you brought up is referencing Antonio Gramsci. And he is uh, was a communist theorist from the early 20th century in uh, Italy. And, you know, one of the things he wrote many things uh, that were highly influential, his his prison notebooks was, uh, at least to me when I read it, was highly influential as well, because it breaks down how um, the the ideology can be run and managed inside of uh, uh, the microcosm of society, kind of known as the superstructure and um so this this is uh it's very fascinating that you you bring up his example because it's one that i've brought up many times in the past and you know encourage people to read and i know uh you know sometimes that can be a challenge for many just you know cracking open a book and getting educated but as far as um The methods of organization and understanding the purpose for why. I believe that um, one good reason for that is uh, and, and can the explanation can lay with the fact that the right is traditionally reactionary rather than revolutionary in its politics. And this this is something that is just the way that it is. Uh, for a lot of reasons, you have to understand. The listeners have to understand why people are conservatives to begin with, and that's because, um, as as you pointed out, at least from you know my background in, in sociology specifically, that we we have this thing called general deterrence theory and social capital theory. And when those two are, are mated together, we have the general deterrence theory to crime because crime and criminality is something that is apostate to our belief system. And we accept these things as being crimes and criminality against the larger social entity because why, why would you do that? Uh, why would you commit these crimes? This is this is immoral. If someone has uh, objective morality though, and they're equipped with with that tool of philosophical underpinning, which Marxists always are, then crime and criminality is now a relative term, and that's no longer an issue. The second part of this this argument dealing with social capital theory is is that people have jobs. They have a house. They have a mortgage. They have a family. And unlike a a very good example just came out of uh, Brooklyn, New York, is two lawyers who were riding around throwing Molotov cocktails at the cops. And federal prosecutors want to drop the charges against them. They want to drop the charges against them. Say, well, you know, this isn't that big of a deal. They're not domestic terrorists. And if you or I were to conduct ourselves in the same way, it, all we have to do is look at the treatment of the January sixth protesters and the exact same uh, the the literally the exact same scenario, but with two different outcomes. And so when when we look at it that way, it's easily uh, frustrating. It's easily overwhelming for most people, but at the same time, it should also be encouraging. Simply for no other fact than if they are having to resort to these measures, if they are overplaying their hand, if they are showing the duplicitousness of their justice system, they are also removing that incentive of people to obey the rules. And so, you know, you're a Gen Xer. um, I am a very late Gen X, early millennial myself. And I'll tell you, um, interacting with uh, you know very late millennials and early Gen Z, there's there's definitely a feeling of bleakness among them, where uh, the you know they are they're, they're very quick to be dismissive of the, the same social structures that we respect, um, and and so that's a byproduct that I see that as a byproduct of them loo- losing legitimacy and and the left losing legitimacy the the harder the measures that they have to take the more illegitimate they become
1: i think there's a like yeah certainly some some truth to that but um you know also there's like a threshold like they might want to try harder measures and you always have to be like pushing you always have to punch up and push just a little bit to see what the next threshold is And I think sometimes when we see the left being a little harsh, that's what they're doing. They're trying to punch through to that to that next um, to that next threshold, the see if see if that behavior, that punching through behavior gets purchased in the electorate, the social infrastructure. And, you know, if it does, OK, then they know that they've arrived at a certain like goal and then they can begin propagating that idea. And then that social infrastructure begins punching up as well. Um, I don't think the right punches up enough. I don't think the right does a lot of things. Um, the right does nothing as far as like creating infrastructures, social infrastructures, community infrastructures. There's just like nothing like that on, on the right. And it's unfortunate because, and you're right, the right is very reactionary because the right is conservative and they tend to want to conserve things. And this is a very, in the military terms, this is very defensive. It's good to have defense, but... It's better sometimes to have an offense so that the enemy doesn't get to your bulwarks and uh, the right needs to be less reactive and more proactive, but in a more thoughtful way, there's nothing worse than just like watching somebody, you know, sort of lead by the chin and keep getting their head, head punched in uh, because they're overly reactive. It pays to be a little bit of circumspect and maybe a little less emotional. And, when I look at people who are very emotional about politics, now a long time ago I was very emotional about politics, and uh, I sort of found ways to like control that. One, become better read, and two, I practice mindfulness meditation pretty regularly. I think it helps me uh, in my praxis. It helps me overall just be better, and I recommend people try that. And this way, you can just be a little bit more circumspect about it and say, you know, the things that I was getting emotional about. Is it needed? If I am dedicated, if I am a dedicated militant or a dedicated revolutionary to these like uh, right wing causes, there's nothing really to get emotional about. There is I need to achieve this political end state. And this is the mechanisms or the operations piece to accomplish that. I don't have to get emotional about that. And if I'm getting emotional about it, then maybe my politics is um just a crutch or just entertainment because it provides me that emotional uh, uplift or whatever um, instead of like a more, I guess pragmatic, thoughtful and meditative approach to uh, that problem. So you know it reactionary is reactionary is what we are called, but uh, reactionary is not necessarily, what you want if you're reacting then the enemy has stimulated your OODA loop and now you're reacting to enemy stimulus instead of saying um, okay that's not something I need to react to because it's not immediately threatening and I just need to calm down and get centered and you know make sure my OODA loop is intact and I'm not being deceived or they're not you know getting me to uh, commit when I don't need to commit or lead by the chin or any of those things so I would really like you know, if I had some advice to give the right, uh, you know, practice meditation and just be a little less reactive about things and maintain the intactness of your OODA loop and your situational awareness, you're there to fight, not to, uh, not to be entertained. So fighting is very pragmatic. It's very practical. It's very technical. These are the end states. This is how we get there. And here are like the metrics to know what we're doing there. Just uh, move forward with that.
0: Definitely. Uh, You know, and that certainly owes to earlier point regarding a lot of the the politicos, if you will, uh, the campaign cowboy types that that work in politics that I know locally who that that quite is literally how they view it. They view it as, you know, team A versus team B. And that's just how things are, are going to go. And, and this just is what it is. And it's business as usual. And they're failing to understand that this is not business as usual. This is not, uh, you know, your, your, your poli sci undergrad class where, you know, you, you can stand up and debate and, you know, the, the professor is kind of winking and nodding at the leftist in the corner and whatever, you know, they'll, they'll entertain your ideas. And that just, um, that era is over with, uh, it's, it's largely over with, but I do take solace in, in knowing that that there are more people who are coming out of the woodwork and and are voicing themselves. But it, I think you're absolutely right, uh, that, that people do need to become more proactive in all this because, uh, when we, we see what, what is manifesting now, when we see the the uh, gas prices being what they are, material shortages, the nation's leaders literally telling us, Biden literally telling us, yeah, there, there's going to be food shortages. Oh, and I need $40 billion to go to uh, Ukraine, except it's not really going to Ukraine. It's going to uh, defense contractors, of which I get a huge kickback for me and my crackhead son. Um You know, and and I think that the the level of tolerance there is going to run out. Now, revisiting the the uh, pushing of boundaries, as you put it, and I think that that's a very eloquent way of of, uh, very succinct way as well of explaining exactly what the left is doing, because this is something I've long pointed out as well. Every one of these protests where you have the left doing what they do, they have rules of engagement. They have lawyers who are on staff from the ADL, the ACLU, the Southern Poverty Law Center, who have briefed, and they are participants in all this as well, but they have briefed the protesters on exactly what they're going to do and where the lines are going to be drawn before they even get out there. Right before they even get out there, and what we're seeing right now, revisiting the Antonio Gramsci example, he's he's very important for another reason, not because of something he wrote, but because the era that immediately followed World War II in Italy, you had the 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 communists who were uh, who who Antonio Gramsci was very much a part and parcel of. That revolution didn't just go away, and after World War II, it kicked back up. You had the Red Brigades. You had uh, just to the north in West Germany, you had the Bader-Meinhof gang. Um, You know, they and and one of the things that the Red Brigades was doing in particular was they were kneecapping judges and they they would find conservative judges. They would either uh, shoot them, disable them, assault them in some way, usually right out in front of the court and. I would say a good case could be made right now that them showing up outside of the Supreme Court justices' homes is an implicit threat of doing the same. What would you say to that?
1: So um, the left has largely mastered the mass movement and using that people as weapons um, because it is very threatening to wake up and see a large number of people outside of your, your house. And if we understand sort of like mob mentality, uh, once that breaks to violence, it'll be very difficult to control. And I'm pretty sure the left, which has a solid foundation in revolutionary theory and practice, revolutionary mechanics, uh, understands that. And it is very intimidating for you or me or anybody to look out their window and see that. So, yes, I think uh, they are doing that. They they had a protest which is perfectly within their First Amendment uh, rights right so they did that and they you know threw themselves in front of the judge's house uh, as a protest and it has like many facets to it it's not dual purpose it's like tri purpose yes it's a little threatening yes they're telling their neighbors what's going on yes they are uh, telling the world that we are not happy with this verdict they are they are doing all of these things are combined in the in the mass human, uh, movement that we see there, or we saw in BLM or, or what have you. And that is very much a part of the fourth generation environment that, that is there. Remember like groups are not satisfied with the legitimacy of the state or they see the right. state as being illegitimate. And there's an example right. of it, a small, yeah, a small example of that. That's not going away. And that's going to break to real violence in the future as America just continues to like balkanize, um, so, yeah, I mean, you're right. that is a an integral part of 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 the left of the left strategy. It's a very good one. They have a long history of doing that. Uh, honestly, kudos to the left for putting that together. Organization is critical, and uh, there there you have it. They have people, social infrastructure affecting their political aims, and that's what they're about.
0: definitely, man. um. On that note, when the decision gets handed down because they the the decision has been made we we got uh the inside look of the early draft the decision's certainly been made um where do you see them going are are they gonna kick off are they are they gonna uh at least in your estimation, do you think that they're going to take advantage of the conditions of revolution as we understand conditions of revolution uh, in a Marxian sense of economic pressure mated with social pressures? Something that uh, Agnew, who's a sociologist, would, would uh, his his theory, he would describe as uh, general strain theory of just all of these different um, pressures on 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 a populace all kind of coming together and it reaches a boiling point where do you see all of this coming together and and if you could talk me through a a timeline if you will i know that's very very difficult thing to to kind of cover but where do you see them in that revolutionary process so
1: um, I, I can't really forecast anything like about um, like the future of the left's mass movements, except they're going to continue and those are going to be where violence happens. So if I had to point like in the United States where like, you know, like the beginning of the kinetic part of the next American Revolution, Civil War two, and I think that's more likely than not then we'll see it at these like friction points where these two mass movements or mass movement meets something else and um i don't i can't really like predict or forecast where that's going to go except that is an integral part of our battle space that's going to continue and that is definitely like some place where violence can be expected to happen the government's responses to that are like to put police there but the left did a very clever thing and they created this defund the police movement. And the the law enforcement is essentially the supervision and regulation of society, uh, particularly the middle classes, because the law enforcement executes the laws or enforces the laws created by the legislation, the various legislatures and the, and the Congress. But those are also influenced by the upper class. Um, you know the, the upper class are the people who get plums from the plum book and become ambassadors and you know they get invited to clinton's functions and and things like that right so law enforcement enforces the will of the government and also the upper class we should be very clear that there is a class component to this and um so the, to fund the police was i think kind of a brilliant move and i don't think blm like actually thought of it i think clever people on adjacent to blm thought of
0: this Oh, so, I, I would agree. I, I, I agree 100 percent. And uh, I, I could go into some personal anecdotes about that, but <laughs> I'll, I'll refrain from doing so.
1: Do, do you, do, I hope everybody sees that, like, the fund the police isn't just an attack on police officers. It's about applying non-kinetic force that you can do legally to neutralize the government and the opposition's ability to fight back. So effectively, they have neutralized parts of the police. In some places, you know, police recruitment is down and police are largely demonized now. And that has created for them freedom to maneuver um, and it opened up their battle space where they can occupy more because they have less problems with the police now. And again, when we come down to like things like infrastructure, they have a lot of organizations that are not profits that provide bail and uh, legal cover for their activities. Uh, this is This is a long time in making and it's been developing for like since the 1960s um, and they're 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 very good about it. So that's going to continue until there is balkanization and like, you know, your people and my people go to where we want and those people occupy whatever they want. So I think there's going to be that's that's a, a critical part of future balkanization or until, you know, there is no balkanization and those protesters become the government because you know, you, that if you're always punching up, you want the next more, most resource or powerful position, which of course is president and, you know, occupying the Congress and making the laws. And, um, you know, that's, I think, I think that's the direction that they're trying to go. I don't know if they're going to be successful in that because they do have some internal issues themselves. And, um, So they might not be totally successful, but make no mistake, when you see those people outside the justice's office or you see those more organized, you know, less reactive protesters in BLM, they are headed towards uh, political office. That's where they're going. And that's the people who are going to tell you what to do with your life. So, you know, again, the right's very reactive. The right says, oh, I've got protesters in my neighborhood. I have to do something. No, you should have already planned for that and then executed that that that. You know, X word uh, right. in in advance of that. Um, so the this like
0: syndrome. The, what's the that? McCluskey, the McCluskey syndrome. The the uh, lawyer and his wife in in St. Louis last summer. They really famously uh, he came out with a M sixteen A one and was you know posturing like he's going to shoot it from the hip. And his wife comes out there with some chrome plated thing, and and you know she's pointing it at the crowd, because they 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 oh, literally yeah. this this is a perfect example of it in St. Louis. The BLM protesters that were out there picked a wealthy neighborhood that was they they knew that it was predominantly white, had affluent people living in it, and they knew they could go in. The, the weapons that they employed there were cameras and social media. And they knew that they could do this. It was all tailor-made. If they just threw enough venom out there, somebody in that neighborhood was going to react to it. And if the cops showed up, then they were going to create a scene there. Right. So that's exactly what they were doing. And, and you're right. These people are going to run for office. They have a, a they absolutely have a very strong political component to it. Um, you know, we, we see this with the district attorneys races that are happening all across the country. I mean, very famously, New York City, the aggregate crime rate in New York City is completely out of control. And this is because the city attorney has eliminated bail. There is no bail. People are getting out. They're getting arrested. They're turning around. They're getting right back out. It's the same way in Garcetti's Los Angeles. This is happening in Portland. This is happening in Seattle. And we're seeing it reciprocate over and over. And and I mean, down on our border, down in Texas, we're we're taking people in. We're immediately letting them back out. Why? Because why not? And so you're absolutely spot on. When you say you know the, these these people are they they're, they're essentially being weaponized. This is the weaponization of a mass movement for the end goal of communist revolution. Now, with that said, uh, it, it's really important. I, I want the listeners to go back and watch the Battle of Algiers because if you don't understand how. Um, Violent offenders are weaponized and utilized by communist movements because they always have been traditionally and they always will. These guys serve as the direct action vanguard. That is what they are preparing to do now. That is why they eliminated bail. They know these politicians, these left wing politicians know that the aggregate crime rate is going to go up. That's the point. That's what they want because they know that once they have a certain level of street survivors who are hardened by combat in the streets, killing each other, doing whatever it is they're gonna do, now they have a cadre who are conditioned to violence.
1: Yeah, yes, um, that that conditioning I think is uh, like quite important. Effectively, they have combat veterans who are able to uh, execute praxis and do that work um, but I would like to point out, if I if I can, some some like shortcomings of, of the right. Um, the, police, the police are not your friend. If you're a if you're a, a far rightist and you're not a centrist Republican, if you're a kind of a far rightist or you think that there's problems with BLM or whatever, law enforcement's not your friend, and you should just be very frank about that. Those are the people. Maybe if they were, if the ATF was serving a warrant on your house, they're not going to serve that warrant with the ATF, but they are going to put up the cordon in, in that neighborhood. So like the ATf can do their job for instance, so I don't want to say like we should bash police, but the fun that there are some structural problems with like maybe law enforcement and you do not have control yeah. over the government and you're not going to have control of the government in the future that's that's probably going to the left so why would you want more police who are going to be controlled by the left to control you what why why because the future I think is the left and balkanization, and if the left controls law enforcement through legislation or the you know DA's office, then you just sitting there saying we back the blue like we used to, maybe isn't the smartest move to make uh, because law enforcement is going to do what the DA wants them to do, and if the DA is a leftist, then uh, unfortunately that's not going to work out well for you if you have you know positions that are uh, you know right of center. Uh, And I see like a lot of like rightists or conservatives saying, why back the blue? I'm like, you haven't really thought that out because they are going to arrest you. And that's exactly the kind of person that's, you know, going, going, going to try and, and neutralize you with less police. What ends up happening is like the government and the upper class become a little closer together, a little closer to us, and they don't have that control and enforcement mechanism. Just remember that law enforcement works for the government and the upper classes, not you. And uh, supporting the police unequivocally is maybe, you know, a little too reactive and a little too old fashioned. So be a little bit more circumspect about that because they're going to put put you in jail and they're going to do so because some leftist DA uh, wanted it that way.
0: Yeah. You, that's absolutely spot on. And one of the things, uh, you know, I I could probably do an entire dissertation on the failures of the Patriot movement from 2008 to 2016. Um, but one of the big ones that I continued to see, and, and of course I was in the army for much of that time, but one of the, the things that I continued to see that was very, very frustrating was this, this idea that, well, if, you know, if, if we just, uh, support constitutional sheriffs, constitutional sheriffs associations, right. And and we get a constitutional sheriff. Okay. Well, you've completely ignored, and, and and there were some very well-educated people who were pushing this idea by the way, there were some very well-educated people with regard to law and the administration of law who were pushing these ideas. And it was very frustrating because that's not who you need to focus on necessarily. The office of the sheriff is very important as a law enforcement official that is very important and they fill a unique role in the overall legal system and the administration of law. But the most powerful person in a legal system And any law expert will agree on this is the prosecutor, is the district attorney of a given uh, of a given place, of a given jurisdiction. And how many people out there and, and, you know, I'm sure you're probably going to get a laugh out of this. How many people out there have no idea who their district attorney is?
1: What's a district?
0: (laughs) Exactly. That's my point. have absolutely no idea who this person is. And if, if you have no idea who that is, because I promise you the left does leftists do know who their district attorney is. And this is how they can go to protest. This is how they can immediately be released. They can go, they can get violent. They can do everything that they want to do. They have, you know, so many degrees of freedom and they get right back out and they rinse and repeat these guys. Right. They rinse and repeat these guys, you know, up in Kenosha. Good example of this in Kenosha. The uh, the the guy that uh, Rittenhouse shot. I mean, this guy had a rap sheet that was a mile long and he had been arrested most recently for uh, child molestation charges in Phoenix, Arizona. How did he end up? How did this guy? Get a bus ticket, plane ticket, whatever, right? How how did he get transportation from Phoenix, Arizona, to little old Kenosha, Wisconsin, and show up up there to burn down some stuff? That makes sense unless you take into account that they have a hardened cadre that has top head cover
1: uh i'm certain a lot of politicians elected officials uh support the various leftist groups it is i think uh we're on the cusp of whether or not progressives are going to you know displace more i guess heritage liberals uh i don't know how that's going to work but they have a pretty you know they're they're pretty well funded they're extremely well organized i really have to say like from you know being in the military their organization is great and uh and um they're going and they are prosecuting political objectives. That's you know, what they're what they're doing and where, you know, other people might just sort of sit around and say, you yeah, know, we'll do it tomorrow. No, man, they're on they're on target twenty four seven and that's what's going to happen.
0: I agree. You know, unfortunately I I would like to be a Pollyanna and you know, kinda kinda tell everybody, well, everything's gonna you know, it, it this stuff is bad and and you know, I would I would love to take the Glenn Beck pill. And, uh, you know, and if you, if you just vote harder, you know, like the, the Sean Hannity's of the world, if you you just vote (laughs) harder, they're going to, you know, it's all going to work out, but eh, not really. Um, coming up on one hour, brother, what do you suggest that listeners of the program really need to focus on right now?
1: Um, So largely like uh, becoming less reactive, I mentioned earlier, uh, like mindfulness meditation. Just give that a chance and uh, I think you'll like it. Uh, You have to organize the people close to you, people larger than you. You have to build infrastructures like where do you get food from? Where do you get water from? How do you do that when maybe those things are more difficult? So you have to build infrastructures and you have to organize social infrastructures, which are people you can count on to to do uh, like political activities, which is fundamentally political warfare. Political warfare largely doesn't involve shooting people. That's, that's the other part of it. Um, So political warfare is largely non-kinetic and, um, you know, start figuring out how you're going to influence audiences, how you're going to build infrastructures, how you're going to be less reactive and how you're going to build, build uh, like community, if you will, that can, that, that you can counter a mass movement with, right? Because, the right, for instance, like, you know, goes towards kinetic uh, um, means like, you know, if the something happens, I'll just shoot my way out of it kind of thing. Well, what if a bunch of protesters show up at your house? You need a bunch of counter protesters to do that. The social infrastructure. So organization infrastructure, developing the social infrastructure is everything that's there and trying to vertically integrate everything you need and just, you know, being less reactive about the situation so that you can think through the. Because, again, when you're reactive, the enemy's, the enemy's owning your OODA loop, and they're controlling your situational awareness. So if you can meditate, you take that away from them. So meditation might be kind of like a weapon for you to be less reactive and more proactive. And uh, that's, I think, what needs to be done. Social infrastructures, physical infrastructures, vertically integrate your needs and uh, just be less reactive about things and more thoughtful.
0: Amen, brother. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Mark J. O'Connor, how can people follow you? How can they read your work? Uh,
1: So I do have, um, if you look on archive.org, you'll find some papers I wrote. Uh, You can find my first paper, which is uh, Electronic Warfare for the Fourth Generation Practitioner. You can find that on Small Small Wars Journal. Or you can go into archive.org and look up uh, my name or fourth generation or Electronic Warfare for the Fourth Generation Practitioner, and you'll find my paper there and some other ones as well. So, yeah, I don't have a large Internet presence, but um, you can definitely find me.
0: Hey Amen, brother. Well, hey, it's been an honor to have you on. I look forward to getting you on in the very near future.
1: Uh, thank you very much uh, for the invitation. Again, it's great to be here. I like your podcast, and I wish you the best. It would be great. I look forward to it.
0: And for all of you out there, thanks for being on with us. Hope that you got something out of it and stay safe, stay sane, stay disciplined, keep it local. And I will be talking to you again very, very soon. This is NC Scout out. Back